0: Welcome to the Treatment-Free Beekeeping Podcast. This week, this week, it's like a weekly show. No, it's not. Um, This episode, I have Susan Cherneck mcelroy She is someone I met down at D. Lesby's conference a year ago, and she is a really great speaker, Really, uh, really fun person to talk to. She's talking a lot in this episode about Skep Beekeeping, Uh, about more hands-off beekeeping. So if you're interested in those things, definitely hang on tight because it's coming up real quick. This episode is brought to you by the patrons at patreon.com slash TFB. Patrons are people who have decided to voluntarily pay for the podcasts in order to support the podcast and support this work of educating new beekeepers and re-educating old beekeepers. So my thanks to them. Check out our our Facebook group. You can search for it at Treatment-Free Beekeepers on Facebook. Also have a uh, Treatment-Free Beekeeping YouTube page, which has uh, 30, 28 some videos, uh, including many lectures that I have recorded, both of myself, a few of myself, but a whole bunch of other people. Also, I've done a couple of how-to videos on how to do some more beekeeping stuff. I'm going to be posting more of those as time goes on. It is springtime now or no, it's winter, but it's nearly springtime and we are starting to do beekeeping things again this year. So you're going to start to see more of that. Uh, We also have a forum at forum.tfbs.net and some other things as well, but mostly the Facebook group and the podcast. So this is like episode 40 something, five, I don't know. Uh, Susan Chernak-McElroy, here it is. Susan, welcome to the podcast. You have the distinction of being the first guest in quite a while who I've actually met in person.
1: Oh my gosh, really?
0: Yeah, it's been a a while.
1: Uh, Well, wonderful.
0: We met... Go ahead.
1: Where did I meet you?
0: We met down at uh, D. Lesby's conference.
1: Oh, yes. Okay, great.
0: So we were down there last year, and Jacqueline was supposed to be there and couldn't make it, and so you came instead. Was that right? (laughs) Yes,
1: I did. I stood in for her.
0: I remember it being a pretty good talk. Uh, You're also famous on the um, Treatment-Free Beekeeping Facebook page for posting things like homemade skeps.
1: Yes, yes. That's um. That's something that I really dove into this year. I've um I'm like five years in beekeeping at this point and Jacqueline Freeman's been my mentor, so I never had any of the issues that other people have had going to kind of conventional bee clubs and kind of feeling a little bit left out. I mean I've always I've been learning at the feet of um exceptional and eccentric beekeepers um, who I just have just the most respect for. And so my way has always been kind of looking at what's best for bees and uh, haven't ever thought of beekeeping as being something that I do because I want lots of honey or would like to make a living at it. I just have enjoyed uh, animals and nature all my life. I have written about them for years and have several books out and as I'm getting older, um, I stumbled into bees, of all things. And I'm 65 now, and I used to do wildlife rehabilitation, and I used to help like a horse trainer and veterinarians. And, and I was starting to slow down a bit, and by gosh. The bees are small, and they take care of themselves, and they keep me out in the garden all the time. And, oh, my gosh, what a wonderful hobby to fall into in, in my golden years. So I've been delighted with bees. And then this last year, I stumbled upon the notion of bees in straw, and that's just been captivating me for the whole prior year.
0: Well, normally the first thing I ask is, uh, is some background on yourself, but you seem to have covered that pretty well, so let's move <laughs> right along then. Uh, you're located up there north of Portland in that area?
1: Yeah, I'm right across the Columbia River from Portland in the little town of Camas. Camas? Camas,
0: yeah. Okay, great. I've been up through there a few times.
1: It's a it's a lovely area, and it seems to me that in my yard, I, I live right up above the Camas paper mill, and I have a lot of forage, really nice bee forage in my backyard, all of my neighbor's garden. And I noticed that when we first moved into this house five years ago that there were no bees. I mean, you know, springtime would come, and I'd look at all my flowers, and whenever I would see a bee, I would just be very excited. Look, there's the bee! Because they were coming kind of like, you know, singularly rather than in hordes. Um, and when I have bees, then my yard is full and all my neighbor's yards are full. And if I've had major winter losses or total winter losses, those are springs when my yard is really very quiet. So for some reason in my neighborhood, um, there just are not a lot of bees. And I think pretty much everything that comes in comes in from me. So um, one of the difficulties I believe I'm having is is whether there's enough really good drones out there um, helping my new Virgin Queens out, because it seems to me that. I've had a lot of calf swarms in the last couple of years and some of the queens seem to mate pretty well and some of them get going early in the season and do well and then completely poop out. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm wondering if they're just not, not really mated well. So one of my goals is to try to start any more bees in my area and bees from different, you know, genetics and different swarms and, hopefully allowing some of the swarms to just be off and gone so I can kind of repopulate the neighborhood a little bit.
0: Sounds like a good plan. Do you have any idea why there might not be any bees around there?
1: You know, I really don't know. Um, I know that there's uh, some people who are keeping bees kind of on the other side of Camas, one of the things that I've wondered over the years is the paper mill here has been a huge influence on the town. You know, it's a mill town from the like 1850s. And I'm wondering if there's been some kind of a chemical overload over the years from the mill that seems to have been curbed a lot more now because, um, you know, EPA and Clean Air Act and all that sort of thing but um, and I I don't know of any beekeepers that are close to me within the you know two or three miles. Um, so I'm not certain, and it does it does bother me. It's like is this a bad place to keep bees, or did for some reason they just you know they just perished around here and never really reestablished themselves? I've got lots of. Uh, Ivy blooming here in the fall, which the bees seem to depend on. And, of course, we've got, you know, the big wild blackberry stand. And, uh, you know, so I know that there's forage here besides mine. And last year, it seemed to me that I was noticing bees coming from some other hives. You know, when you don't have a lot of hives, you start to recognize the coloring on your girls. Right. So when... Bees came in of a totally different color. It's like, oh, you're not from here. So, so I know that there's some bees. Um, that we're just not swimming in bees. But then again, you know, how many places are nowadays? I mean, when I was a kid, it used to be every bush when it bloomed, it was literally covered in bees. And, you know, I haven't seen a lot of that. Even before I ever even dreamed of having bees, I was noticing the basic dearth of bees so um, maybe that's just kind of how it is all over the place but I do know that because I seem to be fairly isolated and there's not a lot of other beekeepers around me this might be an interesting place to have swarms kind of go off into the forest and establish themselves and all my neighbors are fine with my bees they've remarked how much better their gardens look since i started keeping bees some of them are putting out um you know watering sites for them and things too and they're very careful like that and two of my neighbors have asked if i have spare hives if i would like to put bees off in their yard so i don't have any of those typical problems with like oh your bees are swarming or there's lots of bees around or your neighbors don't like them Everybody's extremely receptive, so I can kind of pretty much do whatever I kind of like. So I'm experimenting and trying to learn, and it's as I'm sure you know, uh, the first few years it's such a steep learning curve as as you get to know them and and not only get to know the bees, but as you start to learn how you are as a beekeeper and what kind of beekeeping works for you and what kind doesn't. So the bees and I are kind of coming along together and learning from each other and of course they learn faster than I do.
0: (laughs) Speaking of that, could you talk a little bit about uh, your area and your climate so that people can understand the the type of um, conditions you're dealing with?
1: Sure. Mostly our climate here is Um, You know, tends to be uh, damp and extraordinarily wet during the winters. We can have late wet springs. We never kind of know. Then usually sometime in summer, June, July, August, we might hit a real warm spell and hit a real dirt. We have a lot of forage in the early spring here, but once the late summer hits, there's just about nothing out there for, for bees and and then of course there's that sometimes during the summer months you'll have areas when times when the bees are kind of stuck away in their hives because we're getting a lot of rain and we had that kind of a summer last year it looked to me and it looked to all of us like oh my gosh we had a wonderful forage year long summer we had enough rain to keep things really blooming and beautiful But there were so many rain days that in a lot of cases the bees really weren't able to bring in really good forage because the conditions were just too darn wet. And my bees went into winter this last year not with real heavy stores. And a lot of my friends remarked, you know, gee, their hives were kind of lighter. And mostly we just have very, very wet winters. But this last year, we had a tremendous freezes. I think we had three ice storms coming through the area. And so we would have these wet, 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 and then all of a sudden freezing 20 degrees, below 20 degrees, ice everywhere. And I was watching my bees. There were, there were weeks and weeks where they couldn't, where they couldn't get out. And I'm hearing that a lot of people believe that they lost their bees just to freeze over this last winter so our climate's changing just like everybody else's and we don't kind of know from year to year there's there's no new normal yet and i don't imagine that there will be for a long time and so mostly what we deal with is the damp i think our, our climate's really similar to england
0: i think you're probably right there except for i don't know if england has a <laughs> has a uh, hot, dry summer at all?
1: Right, right. Maybe occasionally it it gets warm there, but you know, I mean, mostly we've had a summer that we can kind of count on. But like I said, spring is usually our really heavy forage season. I mean, lots of blooming trees, lots of blooming flowers, and then we get the blackberry bloom. And as soon as the blackberry bloom is done, and that's our really big one. Then, everything just starts to peter out really, really quickly, so in my yard, I'm just trying to grow everything for late summer and fall because there's so much forage that bees can get um during the earlier parts of the year. I don't have to worry about that, but boy, fall is fall is a tough one
0: <laughs> so how' did you get how what kind of hives did you um initially start out with and talk a little bit about um how you got? into beekeeping and some of the challenges that you had?
1: Sure. Um, I started out with warry hives because I felt that I would probably be a fairly hands-off beekeeper. So I started with three warry hives and ran into all of the really big problems that you would have within a first year. With uh, almost everything that you could imagine, um, I, I bought um, a swarm of bees from a local bee-selling person. And it turns out that it came to me as a laying worker hive. But I, I didn't know that. I mean, this was like my first year after all the reading and studying and, you know, going out on swarm calls with people. And then I you know, got my bees home. And I knew that what I was seeing didn't look right from what I'd been reading, but I I really couldn't track it. And then the other, one of the other bees that I brought home uh, was actually supposed to be a swarm. The people said that the bees had landed and just moved under their porch floor in like the day before. Well, it turned out. When we tore up the porch floor, that the bees had been in there for over a week or two. So that wasn't a swarm, that was a, a cutout. And that was really difficult. I wasn't able to get the queen. I found that out later. Um, there was brood. They did try to raise the queen. So I had one hive that was doing well from a small swarm, one hive with a laying worker. And one hive that was struggling to make a new queen out of a really um, messy cutout. And what I realized in the course of those few months of summer was it was very hard to get into these bees. There was, you know, working a worry hive, trying to take out individual combs and see what you're looking at, is really, really really difficult, especially for a for a newbie person. So while I was going to be content to let them be, they were not going to be okay without intervention, and I wasn't able to do really good intervention in those hives. So year two, one of those hives made it. The other two perished, and I picked up a couple of top bar hives, and I got those Set up and they did fairly well and my concern with those as I went to a winter or two with them uh, all of my hives are undercover. my my mentors have all recommended especially up here in our damp climate try to keep your hives undercover. so I have various little what look like miniature carports where I you know have my hives dashed so even though I kept the top bars out of the weather, um, and I put insulation on top of them during the winters. I always noticed that the bottoms of them were pretty damp, and there was a lot of condensation coming down off the windows. And um, I just felt that the bees seemed to do better in vertical space. That they they you know they would kind of get a little bit stuck about moving. You know, toward the back, back of the hive during the winter and trying to go under the really cold tomes and do the movement that they needed to do to get to their food stores. And I, just, I don't like this very much. And then somewhere, like about a couple of years ago, at the same time, someone, Jacqueline, as a matter of fact, uh, had an extra Sun book by Gunther Menke. And I saw that, a Sun book, big egg-shaped woven hive, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is magnificent. And I just started dreaming about that. And uh, Mikhail Teeley last year ran the first North American uh, sun hive-making class down in Northern California. So I planned way ahead for that and saved up my pennies and went down there and was able to bring home a sunhive. hive and get bees into it last year. It was in a late form for around here, which means, you know, kind of like mid to late June. And and once I got that home and had the experience of the weaving, then I got really busy looking up steps. And I looked and I looked and I looked. And there was virtually no information about them in this countries so i had to get on sites that were foreign and look for translations to try to understand what i was reading and and i decided you know i'm not liking the installation value of any of the wooden hives and that just looked like a no-brainer you know i would read the forums all winter long and people were talking about oh, do I wrap the hive with tarp? Do I put panels around it? Do I stick it in a sleeping bag? Should I put it in the shed? It's so cold, blah, blah. And I thought, well, you know, everybody's running into this with these little one-inch thick hives. And I'm, I'm not feeling that the bees are cozy and toasty in there. And then Mikhail and I were talking and he said in his wonderful German accent, you know, Susan, bees in trees don't even have to cluster much. It's a rare case when they'll cluster. The the thermal regulation in those hives is so good that the bees are just kind of lazy and hanging out all winter. And in a well-insulated natural hive, they will consume four to seven times less honey stores in the winter. And that just, like, I was like gobsmacked. Like, oh my gosh. So, this whole thing about clustering that's what bees do in winter. It's like, no, that's what bees do in the hives that we give them during winter. And, you know, the, the energy to keep the heater bees going is just enormous. And, and I was reading that these woven hives had tremendous insulation capacity. So that started me dreaming of, um, maybe I should look into these and, and so I did. I spent all last year trying to figure out what grasses I could possibly use. I managed to find some, and I started weaving over the winter. And I've now run out of grass, but I had enough to make three, three steps. So this spring, I'll be moving three swarms into those three, and then I've got the sun hive, and my hope, depending on how that goes, is that I'd like to kind of convert, you know, most of my, I, I run about six hives. That's what works in my yard. And I'd like to have most of them in those woven hives. And I know it's a different kind of beekeeping, more like warre where you kind of work by, you know, flipping the box upside down and kind of going through the combs. And the, the skips are like that. Um, unlike the warre. It's one level. They don't have any confusion about whether to move to the next box or not, which is sometimes seems to be confusing for bees. They're lightweight. I can make them for nothing. And they last forever. So it's like, I think that with the kind of beekeeper that I'm becoming, that that, that works for me. I'm not going to say it works for everybody but I'm really fascinated with this and uh, so that's the direction that, that I'm going in Also I just read recently that heavily propolis hives um, do better with deformed wing virus and these within a step hive will propolize the entire interior of, of, of that hive So I figure that it that it's going to be a very warm, and cozy and dry environment that breeds, there's not going to be a lot of condensation falling on the bees. It's a small hive. Smaller hives also have higher survival rates. And I'm thinking, this makes sense to me. So, yeah, so that's what I'm kind of working on this year, and I'm I'm very excited about it. And only five years in, I'm still a virtual newbie. So, you know, I'm hoping I can bring something to the table later As I do more of this, and maybe I learn something from this, that will be useful to other people.
0: So let's pretend I'm someone who's thinking about skep hives. They're really neat. Beekeepers have been keeping bees in them for thousands of years. But I'm a computer programmer, and I don't have any skills about working with my hands. What would you tell me?
1: Well, I would tell you to find someone who does and have them weave one for you. I I can also say that I, I, you know, I'm not a woodworker, so I certainly couldn't make my own top bar hive or something. And coil basket weaving, probably about the easiest kind of basket weaving that there is. So it's something that that I taught myself and was really not that that difficult to do, so it it's definitely a possibility, and uh, I have a lot of friends now that are looking at making these and are interested possibly in selling them. So they're you know maybe down the line there will actually be some on the market. But um, you know, like I said, they're once you get the grass, they cost nothing, and uh, and they last long and. If I were not going to go with a woven hive, I think that I would fill my whole backyard up with like hollow logs because that's like the first best insulated healthy place for bees to be. Well, I can't really lift logs. Um, so this works for me and the learning curve on those, on the step, on the weaving is really not the least bit Deep. you can weave one of these hives oh, in about like three days if you put a significant amount of hours into it. I usually try to weave like a couple hours a day several times a week. so it takes me like a month or more to finish a hive but you know not any problem during the winter, you can just work a little bit at, at a time. And there's classes, um, I'll be teaching classes. There's a fellow down in Marin County, California, who's a, who's a master weaver, and he has Step 5 weaving classes. So it's actually a really doable thing.
0: What kind of materials are they made out of? You said grass. Uh, there's, uh, here locally, there's somebody who sells bales of straw out of their front yard for $5 each. Would that be something that could be used?
1: Um, is the straw long or is it chopped? Like, is it like a straw bale?
0: It's a bale. It seems like it's long. I mean, you know how bales are. It's there. The edges are chopped, but the middles are, are usually longer.
1: Generally speaking, um, back in the day, these were, you know, made by farmers and they used pretty much whatever they had. So what you want is kind of something over three feet tall. So, so my experience with them has been, um, I've tried it with just plain old grass, grass hay in the field, and that works great. You know, you just cut off the grass hay and dry it. Like, I, I dry it just standing up in tubs, and that works well. There's also, all up and down the coast, there's something called Canary reed grass that grows along any kind of a uh, you know watershed and riparian areas, and it gets nice and tall, and you can cut that and use it. Um, of course, anything like rye or wheat or oats. The problem is, is that the grasses can't go through a, a combine. So if you find a farmer who's growing this stuff, you would need to ask can I cut it before you mow it all down? And the amount that you need uh, about for one good, you know, fat foiled depth is if you join, j- join your hands and make a circle with, with your arms about that much grass works.
0: Okay. So you need something like, uh, the way they do hay here, they cut it with a sickle bar mower and then yes. let it dry for a while that would be good stuff.
1: Yeah. That works great. That works great. I don't have anybody up here that does that but one of the grasses that I found and you know for me I mean one of the reasons that I'm like treatment free and hands off sometimes I think it's just because because I'm just lazy. I don't want to have to know all the stuff about you know, when to treat and how to treat and does it work. And then on this month you do this and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, you know, my poor people brain, I'm getting older. I can't really think of that. But um, so I picked up a kind of an ornamental graph. I, I just saw it in a park here and called up the park manager and said, what is that stuff? And he let me cut all of it. It was fall. He said, just go out and cut all you want which I did, and it's a grass that looks like a small version of, like, a pompous grass, and it's called Carl Borster Feather Reed grass, and evidently it's extremely popular in city parks and things, and it's easy to grow, and it's a perennial grass. So, you know, the grass clumps grow like the pompous grass, and then you get these long, tall, um, what are, I guess, the The blooming stems and they're all sterile so the seeds don't reseed and go anywhere and you cut those long stems and they're about four and a half feet maybe five feet long and they work great so I went and ordered uh, from like high country garden ten little five inch pots and I planted them all up and down my uh, sidewalk median strip and so I'll be able to have my own grass that just grows here, so I won't have to go out and and go collecting for it. And I've got several friends who have like pasture grass, you know, organic grass hay, and all of that works fine. So there's really plenty of it around. You just have to think that uh, you have to think ahead, like okay, how many hives do I think I want to make? This is about what it's going to take for each one, and you've got to start getting getting your grasses during the summer and then mostly farmers used to weave during the winter months and then come spring, your task is uh, all of the hives, because they're subject to uh, UV damage you really want to coat them with something to protect the grass, so the traditional coating is organic cow manure and of course Jacqueline Freeman has an organic (laughs) biotidomic milk cow so I'll go out there in the spring. You're supposed to get this spring poop because it's very green and runny and I guess uh, (laughs) it's really great for coating the hive and you coat your whole lovely coiled tip um, in cow manure which then dries and provides beneficial organisms for the bees and protects the hive and if you're a really crummy weaver, but well, it doesn't matter because you cover the whole thing with manure anyway. So, um, it protects it really, really well. So that's the task. You grow the grasses during, during the summer and late summer. You weave during the winter. You plaster them in spring, uh, and you set your bees up.
0: What is the, uh, is there like a twine used to, to tie it all together? What is that?
1: Yeah, I, I just order, um, it, it's called binding cane, um, like, a you know, flat oval bamboo reed, and I pick it up in rolls from amazon.com. It's very inexpensive. So that is like the one cost of the hive, um, If you don't want to do it by splitting your own reeds, and I'm just not up for that, gathering the grass is fine, but you can also use ivy vines, blackberry vines that you strip um, strip the thorns off of, and then you split those brambles. Uh, wind them up in a coil, and then when you want to weave, you can moisten them so you can actually have the whole thing completely organically made from stuff that that you gather but like i said i'm I'm a lazy beekeeper so so I order my bamboo cane
0: <laughs> interesting yeah I'm sure that uh, in the in the process of your research about this, you've come across the um the German videos uh of yeah, Heath Heathland those. Beekeeping.
1: Yes, I love those. Hair whatever his name is on you know, Heather Beekeeping and in, in was it like in, in Lower Northumberland or something. The whole series is Heathland great.
0: Lower Saxony.
1: Yes, that's it. That, um evidently from what I've heard, <laughs> um he his son is still running that get apiary although it's not as large he doesn't have 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 as many hives as is, as his father did but he's still he's still keeping them so that was kind of fascinating and one of the things that you know I was watching well here are the comments that I get about it because when I post this on any kind of a bee forum yeah I, I just take a bunch of critical stuff. And the, the first question is, well, how do you how do you treat bees in a hive like that? Well, I, I don't treat my bees, so that takes care of that problem. But you can flip the thing over and do whatever treatments you would put in a normal hive, just on the bottom of this one. And and so it's possible to do that. Uh, the next comment is you can't remove the combs, so the hives are not legal in the United States. So the answer to that is You can very easily weave these to accommodate combs, I mean like frames, if you want to have removable frames in them. You can weave them square like a Langstroth if you want, and you can use Langstroth frames if you want. When you're weaving a a hive like that, the, the only limitation is wherever your creativity stops. So yes, you can put removable frames in them if you want. I choose not to, and I don't need to. And um, there are, are some states that will say for hobby beekeepers, you don't need removable frames. You really need to just check whatever the local laws are. But those are the two big things. You can't treat, and you can't remove the combs to inspect them. Um, so those are two big issues about the hive. And then people say um, they're too small. The bees will become honey-bound and that's that. Well, you know, bees have been living without becoming honey-bound for millions of years. And I hope that they have that worked out. And, And smaller hives tend to do better. They swarm a lot. And that's the other comment. Well, you can't have hives like this in neighborhoods because they swarm a lot. Well... I hang up a lot of bait hives here on my property, and I'm also retired, and I read Thomas Seeley's wonderful book, uh, Honeybee Democracy, and I read it very carefully, so I have the time and the passion to watch my bees really closely. I've had like 12 swarms in my yard in the past two years, and I've only missed one, and that was when I was gone, um, but... So you can you can manage the swarms really well. I mean, in a circumstance like mine and with my neighbors being fine about it, it's not a problem. I could imagine where if you had really cranky, frightened neighbors, maybe this wouldn't work for you. But you know, but it it works well. It works well for me. It certainly is a kind of um experimental process that I'm going into with it. And,
0: um, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you a question. Oh, um,
1: you didn't ask me any question you like. So gonna- <laughs> good.
0: Um, <clears throat> I was talking to, um, oh, what was her name? Heidi Herman this morning. you familiar with her?
1: Oh, I love her.
0: Yeah, yeah. we did a, uh, this, this podcast will air in a couple of weeks. And if anybody's listening to this one, then you've probably already listened to the last one with Heidi and is, is really good, really good podcast. And we talked a lot about changing the, um, the mindset of beekeeping where you're, you're keeping bees for the joy of, of the bees rather than for, um, for profit, um, does that is that kind of uh, speak to you in that way?
1: Well, that that has spoken to me since since day one. I was never uh, fascinated by the notion of honey. I was just fascinated by the bees, and I found you know I'm a, a person who has suffered really serious depression in in my life, like like go to the hospital kind of. Depression, and having the bees around, working with the bees, smelling the bees because that you know that hive scent is incredibly good for your central nervous system. Spending time up there, I think that that hum, that a really healthy hive has this vibrational hum, which I think also speaks to the human body in ways that we don't quite understand. Um, being outside with them, focusing on them. So you're really putting your awareness and your concentration. It's a very meditative task. And it's been wonderful for dealing with depression um, and, you know, any of those kinds of things. So I, I don't care if I never get honey from my bees. It's just having them, listening to them watching them is an absolute joy and basically all the people that come to our beginning bee classes say the same thing you know I I I just would like to have them I'm not thinking of the honey I just think that these are amazing and we would like to have them so I'm thinking that beekeeping is just it's on two real tracks there's there's the commercial aspect of beekeeping where you would like to make some money off of bees, and so you, you tend them like they're livestock. Or you you're a backyard hobby beekeeper, and in a lot of case, cases, I think that we tend to treat them more like pets. And people like me, our pets are part of the fam- family. So we have a small number of hives, so you get to know the personality of each hive and you become deeply attached to it. And it's, it's nothing like managing livestock. So there's these two entirely just parallel tracks with, with, with bees. And um, the hobby aspect and the backyard beekeeping aspect, I think that's the place where, where bees and the genetics of bees and the health and the integrity of bees will actually be stayed the kind of in these in these wonderful little essentially genetic chalices in people's backyards where they where they tend their bees and they love their bees and i think that that is where the healing of the bees will come out of. I don't think it's going to come out of commercial beekeeping because it's a whole different mindset. um, It's a production mindset. The bees need to produce and you will do with them what you need to do to encourage them to produce. And the backyard keeper is like, what can I do to encourage them to be healthy because I'm enjoying them so much I don't want to lose them, you know, they're my family now. And uh, so there's this, this whole other feeling in the keeping of them that's much more sensitive and extremely compassionate. Um, I, I lived for a time in Indiana, uh, and we would, you know, go to Amish farms and things for, like, au- au- auctions and things, and... And, and and I realized very quickly when I would go to Amish auctions that while they have this very close relationship with land and their community, all the animals within that system are viewed as production units. And you, and you keep them going as production units and as work partners. Um, and that mentality of, oh, the bees are... You know, they're my passion, and they're more like family, and I love my bees. Um, that's not the mindset of someone who makes their living off of animals, who needs to make their livelihood off of the animals that they keep. You have to, you have to separate your emotions out of that a lot more. And I don't think that many backyard beekeepers separate their emotions out. I mean, they get very passionate about their bees, and when they lose a hive, they cry. <laughs> so it's just a different way of being with bees. And I read everything the natural beekeeping trust puts out because there's so much in alignment with the way that I feel about my own bees. Like, what can I do that's best for them? And and Heidi's, Heidi's just a wonderful person and her heart's in the right place and her head is in the right place.
0: Now that I'm talking to you, I'm, I'm remembering some of the, I think, pictures from your presentation from Oracle last year about uh, catching swarms and things. And I've been really promoting the last several months um, avoiding buying bees in the future for new beekeepers rather than uh, lining out for them the process of buying a hive and buying all the other stuff and buying bees, instead leading them, directing them toward catching swarms. So can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, your swarm traps and and how you catch swarms?
1: Yeah, um, a- actually, we've um, recently established our new preservation beekeeping club, and if you join the club we have a swarm program on it. And our goal as a club is to make sure that all of our members get their bees from swarms or a couple of places locally that sell lo- local bees. But we have a couple of classes a year on catching swarms and how to catch swarms They're like full day long classes. And, um, books there and plans for making bake hives and things. And then within the group we keep each other informed. There's a lot of people in the club who already have bees and their bees are going to be swarming and they don't need all the swarms from their bees but they're interested in getting new genetics into their, their yard. So they're going to be swapping swarms with other people who have bees within their yard. And we have someone running the swarm list now who checks with each person who would like a swarm or two and asks them, would you feel comfortable going out on your own? Would you rather be paired with someone else and kind of learn the first time out? So we're really managing that, um, I think, really well this year, and I have uh, absolute confidence that we're going to be able to get all the people who want swarms. Um, we're going to be able to get them local swarms. Now, I one of the ways that I started uh, finding sources for swarms is I had a business card made up, and I passed it out all around my my. City. I passed it out at schools. I gave it to the police department. I handed it to the fire departments and the city workers and said, if you have a form call, I can take care of that for you. And they've all called. I mean, I got called all last year. And Jacqueline's had a form that's going for years. So there are exterminators who, who call her and people who cut down trees and find bees in them who call her. Um, people from old classes who no longer keep these but found a swarm called her. So we have this this swarm network going, and we've got a list of questions, you know, of course that we would put out there to anyone who calls us with a swarm. Um, and we we get really clear about whether it's bees. The way we do that is say, can you take a picture of it? Because, you know, probably a quarter of the calls are people who found uh hornet's nest and they think that they're bees so we like to know we're going out on bees and the swarm process uh is i don't know you know what it's like it's 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 so simple if they're not 20 feet in the air it's a pretty simple process they're extremely relaxed uh last year when i collected swarms the, the first half of all the forms I collected, and I don't know, I think I got about 20 or 25 la- last year, the first whole batch of them were all on areas where they could not be shaken or flipped. I had to do like a hand removal with all of them, just my bare hands. And that is a very intimate way To collect a swarm, and when we teach swarm classes, you know, we talk to people about really being observant. Uh, If you approach the bees, do they start moving? Do they get nervous? Is is there a hum, or are they very, very settled and calm? If you put your hands on them, does somebody come out defensively, or do they just kind of melt into your hands? And in that case, you know, you can just lift them and scoop them with your hands. Very, very gently or bring along a big chunk of comb and and offer it to the bees. They'll walk onto the comb, shake that in the box, walk onto the comb, shake it in the box and you can proceed like that. So that process, once people have seen it once, they relax with it pretty easily. They go, I can do this, I can do this and then they start to get really excited about that whole process and We tell all of our club members and in all of the classes that we teach, never, never buy packaged bees because you're bringing in bees that, for one, are not remotely related to each other. Most of them are not remotely familiar with your geographical area. The queens have been artificially inseminated, so they're not strong queens. And especially for a new person, you're just setting yourself up for a lot of problems. And if you're a person who wants to go treatment-free or do more you know, natural type of beekeeping, more hands-off, uh, packaged bees are not gonna be able to live in a circumstance like that. They're, they're gonna take a lot of care because that's the way they've, they've been raised for generations with a lot of care. They don't manage on their own well. And, and so we, um, we, I mean, it's like, we don't even offer the possibility that maybe people should buy package bees. It's like, no, don't, don't do this. And, and all of our people are really wanting swarms. And then, like I said, there's two or three places we'll send them to locally and say, if you, you know, if you want to buy bees, get them from these people. All their bees are local, they're within their yard, um, their queens are all naturally mated. Do that, but just don't buy a package. And fascinatingly enough, a few years ago, when I first started bringing home bees and swarms, my yoga teacher um, is, is a beekeeper and asked me where I was getting my bees. And I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out and catch a swarm. And he said, oh, you don't want that. He said, get yourself some good bees. You need to buy some bees, you know, that have good genetic lines. You don't want these swarms. And there's a lot of beekeepers who really believe that, that, that these swarm bees are inferior. And um, this year, uh, before he ordered his bees, because they generally die every year, no surprise, he called me up and said, could you get me a form? (laughs) I was like, you bet I can. So, um,
0: sounds like you have a convert.
1: Yes, finally, you know, it took five years, but yeah. And I just think that, uh, I just think that's the way to go. I mean, I I would have no problem with putting the bee breeding industry, um, out of work. I, I think, I think bred bees, packaged bees, artificial queens, um, Weaken the genetics of the wild bees that are out there trying to make a go of it in in the woods and and in in people's eaves and in their empty gas tanks and wherever they can find some little home. But um, yeah, warming. I, I just read recently someone was offering a swarm class here in, in, you know, the next little while and said, you know, swarm swarm bees are the best. And sure enough, people posted and said, well, why? I don't think they're the best. And, you know, it's like, well, how could you not think that? I mean, haven't you heard of, like, hybrid vigor and all of that? And, you know, it's funny. People um, get their mind wrapped around the fact that if you buy a bee that has a name like, you know, Carniolan or Russian or Buckfast, that that's a better bee than than a bee that comes from out of the wild. And then people laugh about that and say, well, it's probably just, you know, a swarm that escaped from some beekeeper's yard. And it's like, okay, they made it through one winter and they swarmed. So, you know, that's a better indication to me of health than a package full of bees out of Georgia.
0: Well, and it the even bigger difference in my mind is they're free. I mean, does it really matter if they die if they're free? I mean, you're gonna yeah. even if they come from another hive that's treated or whatever, and it's, it you, they won't work treatment free. That's fine. Just mm-hmm. go catch another swarm and yeah. the from from what i've seen when people the deeper you get into understanding where package bees come from the less you're going to want to buy them because what yeah. goes on there is they go through hives it's a very brutal process shaking bees into um into into big packages uh, a lot of times they get gassed with co2 to make them pass out to make them easier to deal with yeah. The Queens are raised in mini mating nukes typically, and they are mm-hmm. never checked to see if they actually are in laying condition before they're packaged and sent out the door. They are never checked when I sell queens, they get more well over a month to prove that they are able to lay. lay consistently and so that the the eggs that they have laid are the bees that are in the hive now so i know that you know i know for a fact that these bees aren't wild and crazy and won't sting you up because i i take the time to know now the the difference is i don't have a million dollar budget operation running but Mm -hmm. when you talk about you don't want to you don't want those swarms because they're not as high quality as the package bees that's that's basically a baseless accusation. You don't know where the swarm's from, and you don't know anything about the package bees. And if you don't know about something, then you probably shouldn't talk about it. That's my view.
1: There you go. There you go. I um I I've got a friend who's who who sells sells milk locally, and um I'm actually going to get nook from him this year because his bees are fascinating to me. He works with a fellow who's an old Ukrainian guy, and there's this whole whole group of these old Ukrainian bee, beekeepers that have these bees that they, they just love. And my friend started working with those bees a couple of years ago, and he said my whole beekeeping just changed and expanded. My hives are doing so beautiful. Those bees are great. And they're they're a very dark dark bee and the queens are big and they're black. And whenever I go to his bee yard, he takes me through the little mating nooks with the queens, and he, he shows me all the queens. And then he pulls out the frames and says, "Here, this one's got a really nice laying pattern, and you know she's doing really good. And and you know these are all her 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 daughters here. They've all hatched out. So he knows exactly." what he's selling, and he can show you exactly what he's selling. And one of the other things that really concerns me about package bees, and I'm actually just thinking this through as I'm speaking to you, is I am aware that um, that sister bees within their hive um, uh, know they're immediately related sisters. They have these clans. So, you know, all the different drones that that queen has mated with, well, when she has all of her daughters, those daughters recognize the bees that are directly related to them through through the drone. And when you get a queen that's in a package, she has no relationship with any of the bees there at all. And I just wonder... In terms of plans, how well a disoriented package of a bunch of bees from a bunch of hives all thrown in together, um, how well they even care for and tend this this queen who they have no no genetic relationship with at, at all, and I know that, that the that the worker bees you know, will will kind of give preferential treatment to to their direct sisters within a hive. And I'm wondering how it is for those bees caring for a queen that they have no relationship with whatsoever, if that influences them in any way. But um but I you know, bees are so complex and their behavior is so nuanced that it's we tend to not even speak about a lot of the influences and preferences that are going on in the hive because we can't even conceive of them. We don't understand this notion of hive mind or super organism. And for a species like us who prize ourselves on independence, I just don't even think we understand how that deep relationship within a hive makes a difference to that hive. And my friend who has these nooks with the queens, he he sold me a queen once because I had one failed in one of my top bar hives, and he said some hives, just really won't take a new queen. I mean, you can try two, three, four queens and they're just not happy with it. Some hives will and some hives just won't. And, you know, he even notices the difference about, okay, we're accepting a foreign queen because there's nothing else that we can do. But I don't know how that how that affects bee health overall and if that gives them a leg up on survival when they're – when they're not related, when they're sick and they're stressed, and um, and they're all thrown in together, and they're not even in swarm mode, they're they're not even wanting to go out and set up new housekeeping. They just flat have to, and they're setting it up with a bunch of strangers. It just looks like a recipe for disaster to me. And the fact that it works at all is no testament to our ability to breed bees. The testament to how uh, how rugged and how adaptable bees are up to a certain point. And I think we've passed that point now.
0: Well, I would say the the proof is in the outcome. If you look at um, 25 years of breeding, uh, artificial breeding and controlled drones and artificial insemination and everything that has happened since the Varroa mite showed up, we still have bees that need treatments. That's a fact. Yeah. If you look at um, the failure rate of new beekeepers with package bees, it is enormous. Would you buy a new car if there was like a seventy to eighty percent chance that it would explode within six months? <laughs> right. No, you would not put up with. You would not put up with a product that was. That even even if you could flip a coin and find out if it was going to if it was going to blow up on you or not you would not buy a product that had a 10% chance of failure yeah much less 70 or 80 or 90 or whatever the the failure rate for new packages is it's it's enormous and i don't understand why people ah it's just frustrating to me
1: it it, it is frustrating and it and it, it's Expensive, And that's another thing that we, you know, tell the people in our club and who we do the classes with. It's like, yes, you can spend $420 for a hive. Yes, you can spend $140 for each package of bees that you buy. Then you lose them. Then you have to replace them the next year. And I remember talking to a, a perm- permaculture fellow who, you know, I used to, um, volunteer on his farm and he got into bees and I was I, I was just spellbound by it and I said, You know, what does this take? I mean, what is what is the setup run? And he said, Oh, each hive with bees in it will run you about five hundred dollars. And the minute he said that it was, Well, okay, well <laughs> beekeeping is not on my horizon. So So, yeah, it's like, my gosh, I mean, how can you afford this kind of investment? And then people feel, when they put that much money into them, and we say, you know, don't don't feed them sugar, and don't, you know, do the miticide treatment. It's like, when you've got that much money invested, you will do anything to keep those bees alive. Whether they're sickly bees and they really shouldn't be kept alive because their genetics are terrible, but you will do anything to keep them alive because, you know, you put a big hole in your wallet bringing them home.
0: You're absolutely right. And in my view, that is the biggest thing that is standing in the way of beekeeping today is Mm. is buying bees.
1: I think that you're right. The genetic bottleneck is scary. It's scary. I mean, when in, in the wild, if you had a buffalo herd that was as bottlenecked genetically as our bees are now, well, what we call that in wildlife management is those are the walking dead. Because there, there is not enough genetic diversity to ensure their survival. Anything can come along and totally knock them out completely. So they're the walking dead. And there are certain endangered species that, you know, we've got propped up at zoos or there's a few of them left. They're the walking dead because the genetic diversity has been destroyed. Yes, they look like they're alive, but in terms of survival, no, it's actually not there and I think that what we have created, and you know, don't you even think that maybe that like zombie thing is on pe- people's minds these days because there's so many species now that are the walking dead. And I think that packaged bees are, are the walking dead and they're, they're a danger to the wild bees that are still out there. I mean, people tell me, you know, with the way that I manage bees, oh, you're making mite bombs for my bees. Well, mite bombs are one thing, but you're genetically destroying my, my bees because of your lousy drones, you know, coming over here and and watering down my lovely queen. So, um, yeah, that that whole that whole thing where there aren't enough genetics to even prop the bees up and to and to keep them going. And man, they they live in such a stress environment and they're so genetically inferior to start with how do they fight off anything how do they fight off anything
0: preaching to the choir I've got uh, I'm right now in the process of uh, soliciting locations for swarm traps this year Uh and I am putting up swarm traps across two counties um as far away as would take an hour to drive to get to. So I'm going to be collecting far and wide. I'm going to get the the best that this area has to offer.
1: Great. Great. That's, that's a great idea. And also, you know, I would encourage you to just talk to your beekeeping friends who live at quite a distance and swap forms.
0: Jacqueline mentioned that you might be working on a book. Is that true?
1: Yeah, Jacqueline and I are are pondering that now. We have to just sit down and flesh it out. We we really write together well. We're very comfortable writing together. So um, our agent, kind of looking at us like, you know, and an, another book needs to be in the offering. And I think we should have one within the year. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about what it's about yet because it's like it's an idea that's floating around out there, and it's like if I put it in the wind, it's going to get grabbed. So <laughs> I'm going to keep it under my hat, but we're we're excited to be working on another B project. I I think that book of hers was um, was a game changer for a lot of people. I think it's going to be a classic um, in that. It just, that book was not afraid to put out an entirely different viewpoint on keeping these. And there are a lot of people who are, are not comfortable with it. At the same time, they read it and they say, well, oh, this is a little bit, you know, kind of new agey for me, but I agree with everything you said. <laughs> so it's like, okay, there, yeah, we're making sense. I think intuitively people, people... Who keep animals because they love them understand that you know that the whole livestock management idea of beekeeping is not something they want to get into and they none of us see that it has served any of the animals that we call stock animals we have not served the chickens well we have not served the cows well sheep are like these little fuzzy blobs that don't even have a brain left it's like what are we doing well we've done the same thing to bees and you know I I would easily put forward that with this life extension baloney that we're doing we're doing the same thing to people we can keep anybody alive now and sometimes that's you know when you're not being whittled down by some predator, or if your life is such that natural selection is no longer working upon you, that's a bad thing. Yes, it is. That's a bad thing. Essentially, you've, I mean, I'm not like a religious person. I'm like that spiritual, but not religious. And I would say that once you cut natural selection out of the process, you've essentially tied God's hands behind her back. I mean, that's, that's that's how we're kept healthy and vital. Is natural selection, and we've moved ourselves out of that as a species. And all the animal animals that we've domesticated, we've we've done the we've done the same thing too. And uh, you know, killing it's killing everything, <laughs> not just the bees.
0: Well, the only thing I would add to that is we tried to do it to the bees, and in protest, they started dying wholesale.
1: Yes. Yes, they will not be kept and they'll keep sneaking away and living off in the woods as best they can but it's like you try to keep us like this and we'll just die. Absolutely.
0: You're right. Do you have any, um, any events or things you'd like to promote?
1: You know, not right now. I'm doing um, I'm no, not right now. I'm just doing my typical little summer beekeeping classes. I would say, keep your eye out for me, you know, come autumn, because that's when I'm going to start teaching the the skep weaving classes, and I will have had another summer of bees within those hives, so I'll have a lot more information on how to manage them and work with them and how that whole process is going with the swarming and things. and. Um I feel like I'm just at the beginning of an entirely new B road, so I'm excited and I'm kind of you know working under the radar because because I'm still becoming <laughs> I don't have a whole lot to say yet because I'm still becoming
0: <laughs> What are those um skip classes look gonna look like because I might be interested in coming up and and seeing that.
1: I am thinking that they will be uh, uh, will do it over a full weekend. We'll leave both days, and um, we'll have the grasses here and the tools and the frames and everything available to start working on them. And probably most people will leave with their hive half to three-quarters done. But they will know how to finish them up when they go home, and they'll go home with the tools, um, I, I have a friend that I've contracted with locally, who who is making the weaving forms. It's much easier to weave around a form, especially when you're new. Uh, trying to keep, a, you know, all your coils even can make you crazy. So he makes these lovely, you know, wire frames that we weave around, and then you pull the frame out. So I'll have a set of those forms made, and the little tool that you actually work the. Work the uh, reed to the straw with is actually a marine tool called a fid. So I'll order a bunch of fids and we'll have all the grass and and we'll you know I'll show how to start one and then how when you come to the end how you finish the whole process off. And I'm thinking that probably the maximum that we can handle this first year is going to be ten. But one of the things that I'm thinking of is. Uh, You know, because we have a lot of grass to gather for all those people and things, Um, and it's usually later in the summer. But if there's a group of people, and in fact, you can put this out there. If there's a group of people who would like to start gathering their own grasses, I think that the first pasture grass, when do they do the cutting sometime in June? If you want to go out and gather a lot of pasture grass, you know, grass to make your own step. And if we come up with a group of people that have gathered their own grasses, I can teach whenever they're ready and wherever they're ready. I'm happy to, happy to travel down and do it. I'm, you know, I'm ready to teach it. I just need grass. So, yeah. I would love to have you up to do the class. Would love it.
0: Well, there you go, folks. Collect some grass. Uh, we have we have a lot of really nice uh, wild oats that grow around here. They usually grow like four or five feet tall.
1: Oh, oats are perfect, and they also are one of the crops that actually comes in a little bit earlier in the year. Oat hay is awesome. So yeah,
0: yeah, that sounds good. I'm. Uh, I'll continue to uh, to promote that. Maybe we'll have you back on the podcast later in the summer, and we can promote that. Make sure we get. Um, plenty of
1: people for you. I would love it. I think that's going to be great fun. It's a very intimate, hands-on way of keeping bees. And I I just think that, you know, there will be people who say, why would you go backward? And it's like, no, 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 no. This is not going backward. This is taking the best of what was before and then stepping forward and bringing it in to, to the world today, and I'm so you know i I would love to see more of these I don't think there's any skep beekeepers in the United States, so I would be more than happy to see little clusters of people who even just have one or two of these hives they're remarkable things
0: well I would say the uh, the best reason for going backwards is because we went too far
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah we, we 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 sort of got off track
0: well Susan thank you for uh for coming on the podcast I really appreciate it we've had some great conversation here This is going to be some great information for uh for people who are looking to keep bees in uh, a more hands-off way and maybe build their own skips so thank you for coming oh
1: thanks for having me it's been great I love to talk
0: to you. And that is the end of another episode. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, Have fun keeping bees, because if you're not having fun, you probably shouldn't do it.